HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's c-o-m-t-e-usa.com. This week on Meet and Three, it's the final episode of our series on global trade. We're thinking futuristically, from China's ambitious plans for a new Silk Road to the future of borders and automation. If you're a banana, you know, it's easy to cross the border. But if you're a person who's trying to follow the jobs, uh, it's a lot more difficult, if not impossible, to do so in an authorized and safe fashion. They love food trucks and they love growing your own food because these things are not dependent on essentially government systems. So there's a whole politics to pretzels on the dark web. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Cutting the Curd. This is Jessica. I'm your host for this episode. And my guest today is Lauren Gitlin of Villa Villa Coola Farm up in Tunbridge, Vermont. That name sounds familiar. It's also the name of Pippi Longstocking's childhood home. But we'll get into more about that later. Uh, Lauren has 15 goats. The farm recently had its two-year anniversary, and we don't get a chance to talk that often to a farmstead creamery operation this early in its beginnings, so I thought it would make a great conversation. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Lauren. Lauren, welcome to Cutting the Curd. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and um, happy (laughs) two-year anniversary to you. Thank you so much. The goats and I are still getting over our hangover from celebrating. So <laughs> we're all we're all still just uh, sipping Coca Cola and eating French fries and trying to trying to get ourselves back. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, right? Um, Crazy. Good times. Crazy well, times. you know, I'm sure you're all kind of quarantining at home too. So yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> quarantine is like our resting state. Um, like, it's kind of weird that it, it, it was almost as if, like, the rest of the world was sort of in the the condition that that we're in most of the time. Like, I, I'm pretty much 
relegated to staying mostly within like a 10 mile radius of the farm um, most of the time. So, so I, it wasn't as much of a shock to my system as I think it was for a lot of other people. Um, right. Because, it's like the rest of the world, the rest of the yeah. world kind of clued into uh, your pace, which is, <laughs> exactly, exactly. which is nice. Yeah. So um, before, before we delve into your story and your journey, can you tell us a little bit about your farm and your, and your current operation? Yeah. So as you said, I have 15 goats, although some of them are freeloaders. So um, I started I started this little operation just about two years ago. I moved um, to Tunbridge um, after having come across an opportunity to rent a barn and a grade A creamery facility um, and had been bestowed with uh, three alpine does um, from a farm that I had worked at previously. Um, and so they moved in a couple of days after I did. And um, we started from there. They had babies and then their babies had babies. And now we have 15 goats. Um, two of them are boys and three of them are babies. So not all of them are milking animals, but um, yeah, we're, uh, we're just growing the herd slowly but surely. And this past year was the first year that I was actually in production. Um, so it's quite a, quite a long um, and arduous process of getting a milk handler's license, or at least it was for me. Um, so it took a long time before I was able to get that squared away and have a product that I could market. And that, that happened in about, I guess it was late September of this past year. Um, which only gave me about three months before I dried off my herd and ceased production, but it gave me a good opportunity to just get a sense of the landscape, like, you know, what my market was going to be and, and really to kind of fine tune and tweak my product. And so um, we're still sort of at the very beginning stage of my business and trying to grow in a kind of sustainable and manageable way because it's just me um, and, you know, I don't want to burn out <laughs> if that's yeah. possible. So yeah, so that's where we're at. So in the before times, and yeah. not not just the before COVID times, but going <laughs> right. back, 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 uh, you were a journalist, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, so how do you get from being a journalist and living in a city yeah. to living on a farm raising goats in Vermont where like your life kind of uh, is like within a 10 mile radius of your bed. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways I, I feel like, you know, living in New York, people have the same kind of experience of like, you know, as, as sprawling as New York is like you end up having like your own little routine and like inhabiting like a pretty small radius. So um, but that said, yeah, I mean, I, I moved to the city in 2002 um, after college and pursued a career in journalism and worked in magazines for a period of time. And, you know, it was a combination of just kind of getting burnt out in that world. And also like the industry as a whole became very different. And I found myself kind of competing for less and less prestigious jobs and being like less and less interested in, um, you know, contorting myself to try to get these jobs that were not all that fulfilling. So 
right around 2009, 2010, I decided to go back to school to pursue a master's in um, food studies at NYU. And, you know, I was really interested in sort of the cultural and historical underpinnings of food and had always been really interested in cheese. Um, and I started working um, in both cheese and in wine retail. And obviously those foods are kind of the um, the most um, obvious uh, symbols of this idea of terroir. And so that whole idea really fascinated me. Um, and I, and around that same time, I was, uh, I had read an article in the New York Times that was a profile on a woman named Lainey Fondler of Lazy Lady Farm in Vermont. And there was just something about her story that completely um, just pierced me. It was just so incredible to like, you know, see these pictures and listen to, like, you know, hear her story. And um, I wrote to her, <laughs> Uh, this was actually like before I'd even gotten accepted into my graduate program. So I was sort of just in this weird liminal state of just like not really having a set course, but there was just something that really spoke to me about Lainey and her farm. And so I wrote to her and asked if I could come and work for her and I got zero response. Um, and then I kind of just went about my business. I ended up going and getting this, um, getting this degree, getting, getting some, jobs, both as a cheesemonger and a wine seller. And, um, and the more I learned about cheese, the more I felt like a real compulsion to just not just learn about it in a sort of sterile intellectual way, but to understand really the, the, the true, um, more visceral side of it, the production side of it. Um, and uh, a couple years into my program, I was up in Vermont taking an intensive course um, at UVM that was sort of focused on the dairy industry. And I used that as an opportunity to try and reach out to some cheesemakers that I had come to really admire. And of course, reached out to Lainey again with the hope that I would finally get to meet her. And of course, as I started working as a cheesemonger, I had also just like heard all this lore about her as a person. Um, and like kind of a pioneer in the artisan cheese world. And so I was really intrigued and wanted to meet her and um, she agreed. And so I plotted my whole course around going up there to meet her. And then a couple of days before that, um, before I was due to go and visit her, she emailed and said that I couldn't come because she was going to be putting up hay and it was going to be too hectic. And of course I was crestfallen. So um, you know, but I went about my, my journey and then fast forward a couple more years and I was, um, at that time had finished my degree and was managing a wine shop and was sort of at that stage where I think a lot of, I'm sure a lot of my peers have gone through this at various points in their life as a city dweller where they just, they just get antsy and restless and feel like, you know, this isn't necessarily the place for them. And that was certainly what I was feeling. I was, you know, looking for an exit strategy of some kind and had been applying for cheese making jobs, um, a couple of cheese making jobs in various places. And, um, but I was, uh, on one specific afternoon, I was on uh, a website called good food jobs because I was looking to hire someone part-time for the wine shop. Um, and as I was getting ready to post something for the shop, I saw that there was a help wanted ad 
of sorts um, that Lainey had posted looking for um, an assistant. And so I immediately thought this was a sign. <laughs> and yeah, I would take it as one. <laughs> yeah. And I wrote to her immediately and was like, hi, perhaps you remember me from having stalked you for the last five years. I mean, it really was like four <laughs> or five years and like multiple attempts on my end to like reach out to her. And I always think of it as like, I, I don't know if this is actually true, but according to Sex in the City, it's true that like when you try to convert to, to Judaism, like you're, you're yes. refused three times and like you have to kind of prove <laughs> that you're like committed to it before they believe you and like take you on. And I feel like it was a similar thing with Lainey where yeah. I just like kept having to go back to her and be like, now, can I now? And, that was a great um, episode of... Uh... <laughs> Of Sex in the City, by the way. Right? I know it's like <laughs> it's lodged, in, sadly, lodged in my memory. Like there's so much more mm-hmm. useful information that is like taken up in in my brain. That's just like episodes of Sex in <laughs> the City that I think should really just move out and make room for something more useful. But anyway, um, yeah. So so she uh, responded to the email and said, "Sure, why don't you come on up and interview?" And I did that, and it was only after I had like conspired to try to like, you know, borrow someone's car and drive the six hours and like find her farm, which was like at that point, not on any map. Um, I got there and like, it was obvious to me that she had not actually looked at my resume because she seemed a little taken aback that I didn't have any um, relevant experience either with farming or with cheese making. But for whatever reason, that was somehow didn't deter her from offering me the job. And so I, uh, that was in July of 2014. And I, um, I started at Lazy Lady in September of 2014. So I sublet my apartment, I bought a car, I like moved my whole life, which was at that point, like just some like crappy Ikea furniture and like a shit ton of books. Um, I hope I can swear on this podcast. (laughs) Sorry if that's bad. Um, but yeah. And, uh, you know, and my cat who was displeased, uh, to say the least. And yeah. And I, I sublet my apartment with the understanding that I was probably not going to like last because it was going to be too hard or I was going to be just too, too soft to make it, to, to make it work. And for whatever reason I ended up lasting and I spent a little over a year there and then I moved to another goat farm um, in Vermont called Twig Farm and worked there for a little over a year. Um, and they're, they're both um, around the same size and they both work with, uh, worked with um, alpine goats. That's the type of breed. Um, and So were you yeah. always, I just want to ask, were you always yeah. set on goats? Did you know when you thought of cheese, that goats <laughs> and goat milk would be the ones, you know, would be the thing you'd want to do. And also, it sounds like also, it wasn't just cheese making. Did you always want to be on like a farmstead operation? Okay, so. Because you could have uh, just, you know, gone to a dairy, right. you know, gone to a creamery and right. not, you know, and bought the milk. Yeah. Well, I I had actually, um, it wasn't really specifically goats, although I did have like weird connections to goats. My mom had had a pet goat when I was um, just about to leave for college. Like I, I call it her empty nest goat. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I had, had had interactions with goats in the past and I, I'm originally from Indiana and that's the home of Capriol farm, which is like a very well-known goat dairy. So, um, so I had some familiarity with like goat cheese and goats, the animals, but I didn't really set out to work specifically with goats. Um, 
but I, I set out specifically to work with Lainey, really, because um, I was intrigued by her and um, really just wanted to learn from her and like, be, you know, sort of just get get a chance to, um, you know, draw from her extensive knowledge. But um, but, you know, prior to landing that job, I had been looking for other other cheese jobs and um, almost took a job in Wisconsin um, doing affinage. Um, and, but I think the thing that was important to me um, and that appealed to me about Laney's operation was, you know, it was like a full immersion type of experience. Um, I don't, and I don't think I would have really been able to justify like uprooting my entire life um, and making this dramatic change if it hadn't been like a full, like a, a more kind of holistic um, opportunity to really learn from start to finish how cheese was made, you know, and that of course starts with um, grazing and with handling the animals and, you know, with then obviously working in, in the dairy and then in the cave. So that was the appealing thing about her operation. I mean, she is someone who is intimately involved in every, at every stage. And, um, and, you know, very few people are doing that anymore. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's never been a terribly financially viable pursuit and it's becoming less and less. So there are a lot of farmstead cheesemakers who have, um, I mean, Capriol is a perfect example. They, they sold their herd and are buying in milk, um, and making beautiful cheese, but you know, it's, it's becoming harder and harder to be, um, a person who produce, produces their own milk and then uses that for cheese making. And it's like becoming kind of a lost art. And it's, it's something that I think is really beautiful and important to be that, um, you know, that enmeshed in every, every stage of the process. Um, so, yeah, so I don't think that I would have been willing to um, change my life so dramatically if it hadn't been something that was kind of like, a serious, intense, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. undertaking. Um, I'm kind of an all or nothing type of gal. So that was, that was how it was going to have to work for me. So I'm going to take this as an opportunity for us to pause for a word from a sponsor and then, and then come back and pick up with your journey after Twig Farm. So we're going to pause for a little bit and we'll be right back. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conté within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conté. Conté takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conté is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conté is the same. 
Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. And we're back with Cutting the Curd. I'm speaking with Lauren Gitlin from Villa Villa Coola Farm in Vermont. And we were talking about her journey to setting up her own operation. And uh, we've heard some really, really great um, information about your your connection with Lazy Lady Farm. And then you went on to Twig Farm, which is another favorite among cheesemongers, uh, beautiful goat cheeses. And then after that time, um, where did your journey take you? Um, well, I had a chance to go and work overseas. So I got a job at a little, sh- well, not so little, a sheep dairy in Tuscany, which of course is like, like the most cliche thing, but like it was, a, it was, it was a really exciting opportunity to travel and to continue to learn cheesemaking. Um, and I was intending to be there for, um, you know, almost a year, but because I didn't have the proper paperwork, I ended up not staying for as long as I had initially expected. Um, so I wound up back in the States and was not certain what I was going to do. And then um, an opportunity to go back to Vermont and work at Consider Bardwell presented itself. So I moved there and I spent a, just under a year working there, although I was not in the cheese room. I was um, I was on the, on the farm side. Um, and, you know, that was, again, another really excellent opportunity to like really learn and immerse myself. I mean, I, the first two cheese jobs that I had at Laney's and at, at Michael's, um, were, you know, were everything. It was, it was, you know, from milking to making cheese, to aging the cheese, to marketing the cheese. Um, and it gave me kind of this like overview, this holistic kind of understanding of things, which I really wanted and was really valuable. But, um, when I was in Italy, I was just doing cheese making. And then when I came back and was at Consider Broadwell, I was just doing the herd management. And I think being able to have sort of a, a basic foundation of understanding of like how everything worked and fit together, and then being able to kind of drill down um, into each um, component part separately and individually was really useful for me. So um so I, I went to, I was at Consider Broadwell and then I actually ended up back at Lazy Lady for a part of a season, um, which was, which was kind of a, it was a really, um, sweet, sentimental kind of return because I, you know, I had started there with, as a total novice. And I mean, I would, I would, I would argue I'm still pretty much of a novice, Um, but, you know, going back and feeling a little bit more confidence in what I was doing and just like having, having an understanding also of just the way that the strange universe of lazy lady worked. Um, you know, I felt it it was, it was a really lovely experience to go back and to help Lainey and to like gain even more of an appreciation for just how 
special she is and how and how special her farm is having had other experiences at other places and being able to kind of see where she falls in the continuum um so i spent yeah just about a little under a year um back with her um and then i was kind of at a crossroads of not necessarily knowing where i was going to go next i had I had applied for an MFA in creative nonfiction and was thinking of maybe going back to school so that I could finally write the book that I have been wanting to write um, for years, but never gotten gotten my shit together to do. Or, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was just sort of like not totally sure what was next for me. And um, I was contemplating the possibility of taking on some <clears throat> animals that consider Broadwell was um, thinking that they were going to try to get rid of. And I didn't, at the time I was renting like a little apartment from a friend. And so I didn't have any barn space. So I just started casually Googling around um, to see if there was any sort of like barn rental type of um, opportunity for me if I wanted to take on these goats and you know and and I wasn't really envisioning anything other than just having them as pets because I wasn't really necessarily at that point where I was like yes I'm starting I'm starting my my dairy business but one of the first things that um, ended up emerging was a Craigslist ad that was a um, sort of package deal of a rental that was, you know, a farmhouse and acreage and a barn and a creamery facility. And, you know, in my well, mind, I was like, perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it was the kind of thing that I didn't know I, w- I wanted or was ready for, but I, I just put some feelers out just to see, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, in my mind, I was like, yeah, I'm probably not gonna be able to afford it. And it may not be the time, but I'm just gonna ask, I'm just gonna, you know, just cast a net and see what comes back. And, (laughs) um, and I wound up speaking to these lovely folks who own this huge, beautiful property. And the more we talked, the more it seemed like, okay, this might be my, this might be my one shot because, you know, given that I was, you know, at the time I was like a single solo farmer or, you know, that if I was going to take a gamble on doing doing a, like a farm business as my career trajectory, you know, I, I was going to be doing it on my own. And the idea of doing it sort of in the context of a more kind of almost like a cooperative where, um, you know, I was renting space um, from people that were living on the property that were also farmers, um, but doing something different. And, you know, I was would be able to kind of avail myself of some of these resources, you know, if I ran into snags or just to kind of navigate this sort of um, complicated and Byzantine like beginning um, process of starting up a dairy. Um, you know, I feel like that, I, I, it felt as though that was going to be my best shot. And so, you know, I went for it and um, Lainey was going to be retiring one of my favorite does who I had like really bonded with when I very first started working for her. So it just felt like everything kind of, conspired and came together um right in the that moment and made it seem like this was the the obvious next step so so yeah so we went for it (laughs) so it's just it's just amazing to me hearing your story just it it reminds me of you know those those 
the olden times where people apprenticed, you know, where they kind of struck out um, to find people to learn from and they, and, um, you know, and they apprenticed for a while and then, and then, you know, maybe with more than one person like you did and, um, and, uh, and before they struck out on their own and, and, you know, it, those opportunities, I don't even, I don't even know if, if that's how people think about getting started anymore. Um, if that's, if they, if people still kind of think about doing that, like struggling a little bit, um, finding the people that, you know, that you idolize or, or that you, you look at and say, that's, that's the kind of operation, um, I admire. That's the kind of tenacity I admire. I'm going to go and pursue a chance to learn from them. Um, and you did this with, you know, several, um, really well-known and well-respected operations. And then also the trip in Italy, your time in Italy, so you, they must have all, of, I would assume, have all been very different from each other. So how, what did you pick up from each of those experiences that helped you define how you were going to be, like how, what you were going to make Villa Villa Kula farm? Was there something that, that you kind of took from each of those experiences um, or did it just like kind of reaffirm in your head, like? This, this is my vision. This is what I'm going to do. Um, well, I mean, I think everything started before I moved to, you know, before I moved to Vermont, like I had an idea that I wanted to make butter. And I had had this really incredible butter when I was traveling in France. And I had had it served to me on a cheese plate, which kind of changed my whole perception of what butter could be, you know, like, because in America we eat butter because, you know, it's, we eat it on things or in things. It's not like the main event. And so I just started thinking like, oh, I really want to make butter. Um, and that was always in the back of my mind, even as I pursued cheese making and learning, learning to make cheese. And, you know, and the more I learned, the more I thought, the more I came to understand like, wow, well, cheese maker, butter making, if you're working with, with goat milk is not the most viable, um, enterprise, um, because it's just such a low yield product, but we can, we can get to that later. Um, I, I guess, um, I, I, I did learn a lot from Lainey, although I, I didn't necessarily learn what I was expecting to learn from her. Um, I, um, I didn't learn as much about cheese making, at least initially, as I was expecting to, just because, you know, because she is spread so thin and because she is doing everything, um, she just didn't have the time to really spend with me and like explain things and train me in a really hands-on way. Um, and I think maybe another person might have taken to it more easily, but I just, it was a really steep learning curve for me. And I just wasn't, I didn't totally get it um, when I was working for her, but I learned a lot of other things. You know, I, she remains a person who is like a mentor um, and just the way she's organized her life and the way she's remained so committed to her vision um, and is like the most hardworking person I have ever encountered. I mean, she's just so inspiring in so many ways. Um, you know, having started with nothing and built something really brick by brick, like over a long time. Um, it's just, it's just a really 
amazing, inspiring story. And, and it's just something that I carry with me. Um, Michael is, it was much more hands-on and much more, you know, um, verbose and, you know, willing to explain things to me, um, in a way that I needed, like as a, an individual, the way that I learn. Um, and so I think, you know, obviously he, he taught me a lot about, um, intensive rotational grazing. Um, but he also really taught me a lot about the cheese making itself, um, and was really patient and, you know, had a lot of wisdom that he was willing to impart. And so I think that was a lot more like where I learned about cheese making, although, you know, he makes a very specific type of cheese that is, you know, very unique. Um, I mean, with Lainey, like Lainey's like menu of cheeses is like exhaustive. Like she has made every possible type and style of cheese that a person can possibly make like dozens of times over. Um, whereas Michael's kind of lineup is much more focused. Um, so yeah. And then I, I don't know if I would say I learned a ton in Italy other than that. I learned that I did not want to have a large, a large scale operation, um, you know, and that was something that was like affirmed at Consider Broadwell, even though, you know, in Consider, at Consider Broadwell, like that's, I would say that's like not a huge operation compared to a lot of places, but it was definitely larger than anything I could see myself wanting to pursue on my own. Um, but, you know, I learned a lot about, um, goat husbandry and, um, you know, I, yeah, that was a great opportunity to like really, um, be accountable to and be responsible for animals in a way that I never felt like I was before. Um, and it was really stressful and it was like very emotionally <laughs> exhausting because, you know, you just get so attached to these creatures and, you know, when they're sick or suffering, it like, it really, it can be really painful. Um, but, I learned so much and I'm really grateful for the time that I spent there because it, it helped me kind of refine and distill the, the things that I wanted to take from that experience, you know, moving forward to like having my own. So you have, you have your farm, you have your goats, the goats are having goats. Yeah. So you've got milk. So what, um, now that you're starting on, you know, building your creamery and your products, so you're making um, skier yeah. right now, correct? Yeah. So for those of us who aren't as familiar with skier, uh, what is it and, um, and what's that process like? Um, so as far as I understand it, and I am not the expert, um, skier is an Icelandic cultured dairy product that is very similar to yogurt. And the thing that distinguishes it from yogurt is the inclusion of rennet, um, which helps to coagulate the curd. Um, and as I understand it, skier originally, like traditionally is made with skimmed milk. And, um, and it was like something that was made using basically the byproduct of butter making. And this was um, cow's milk traditionally? You know, I think so. Although I know that they have a lot of sheep as well there. So I'm not totally sure what animals they were working with. But yeah, I think primarily like 
for the most part, um, what you'll see commercially available um, for skier is cow's milk skier. Um, so, you know, I, I had had my heart set on making butter. And then once I started working with goats, I was like, well, I guess it's going to have to be goat butter. And um, so as I was thinking about how I was going to make this a financially viable enterprise for myself, um, I was talking to another farmer, a guy named Rich Larson, who has a, a really lovely um, farmstead in Wells, Vermont. Um, and he suggested that I start, you know, experimenting with skier, specifically because it is made with skimmed milk. And that could be the thing that I could do to kind of close the loop, as it were, in the creamery um, and sort of um, capitalize on what would otherwise be a waste product. Um, so I started, you know, doing kind of trials with both the butter making and the skier making. And the process of skier making is very similar to making yogurt. I mean, you're, you're heating up your milk to denature the proteins, and then you're cooling it back down and adding the culture and the rennet. And then, um, and then I strain it as well to just help get it to a nice, um, thick texture. Um, but um, one of the missteps that I made in, in sort of planning my product line and my equipment purchasing was that, um, you know, I bought a 30-gallon vat pasteurizer um, with a minimum uh, three-and-a-half-gallon fill. And I didn't realize until it was too late that um, when you separate milk, um, and, and that would be something I would need to do because you um, – goat's milk is naturally homogenized, so you have to mechanically separate it. Um, so you, you separate the milk raw, and then you pasteurize each constituent individually. And given how small a volume I was working with, um, because I had so few animals, and also given how low the butter fat was um, with the with a specific breed that I was working with, it was not possible for me to get to a point where I was going to be able to pasteurize my cream and then churn it into butter. And that's something I'm still hoping to do and planning to do, but I'm going to have to, you know, get my volume higher, get my butter fat higher, and possibly also buy smaller equipment. So it's going to be a combination of things and it's going to take some time. Um, so in the meantime, I've been working on just making whole milk skier. And like I said, I was able to start selling it um, this past fall. And I had, I've had i had a really wonderful reception. A lot of you know local people that have really taken to it and been extremely supportive and encouraging. And so, you know, I'm going to keep trying to perfect that and also perfect just like my workflow and my efficiency and slowly increase my my production so that I can continue to um, meet the market demand and like, you know, try to come up with new, um, new markets as well. And, and slowly start to build towards also eventually being able to make butter and um, hopefully maybe one or two other products that are all going to be interconnected so that there's little to no waste product. So it sounds like 2021 could be could be a really a new year, new new frontier, new items, new opportunities ahead. 
Yeah, well, and, probably uh, not 2021, maybe 2022. Okay, 2022. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah realistically. We'll see. we'll see. You never know what could happen. You never know. Yeah, we've definitely learned that over the last 12 months. For um, sure. So I need to ask Pippi Longstocking and her influence. Where, Where is, like, what's the story behind that? How did you come, like, why, why Villa Villa Kula Farm as a name? Um, well, I, I've always loved Pippi Longstocking. Like she was one of my favorite, um, characters as when I was growing up and, um, she has red hair and I have red hair and, um, I just, you know, when I was beginning this venture, you know, it, I really felt like, you know, because I was on my own, um, you know, I wanted to, instead of seeing that as an obstacle, see it as like a strength. And I feel like there is no better figurehead than Pippi Longstocking for this combination of traits that is, you know, strong and um, independent and creative and whimsical and playful Um but like, don't cross her because she can lift a freaking horse off her porch and throw it at you if need be. Um, so, you know, like all of like all of those sorts of um, characteristics really spoke to me and it just became kind of like my, uh, I don't even know, like my totem, I guess. Um, you know, just, just trying to connect with this idea of like finding, finding strength in this, in that, in that. Um, set of personality traits. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of, a lot of it is also just like the idea of being playful um, and, and finding like the adventure and the joy um, in all of this, because, you know, it, it can be a very solitary life. It can be a very repetitive life. It's a very hard life, um, but it's also extremely rewarding Um and I feel really lucky that I get to live it. So, um. well, I have to say that your website, um, which is villavillacoolafarm.com, is beautiful. It's it's fun. It's I'm I'm looking at it right now. Adventures and deliciousness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if anybody's mark. curious, uh, definitely check it out. And um, you can see some photos, photos of the of Lauren and the goats. Um, and also, are, are you are you still writing these days? Oh, not as much. I yeah, I've been pretty bad with keeping a disciplined writing practice. I, you know, I, I was writing a blog when I first moved to Vermont, really mainly, well, it was, it was partially to just chronicle this like completely foreign and new experience that I was having of learning how to farm and living in this remote place. And it was also just like kind of an exercise to keep myself, to keep my creative juices flowing. And, you know, I was successful at keeping a pretty regular practice of doing that for a couple of years. And then once I started my own operation, that became much less viable. So I have not really been doing much writing, but every once in a while, <laughs> I only, I think it's, yeah, it's tough because, um, 
yeah, it's just, it just doesn't make the list of priorities on a daily basis. And, um, only so yeah. much time in the day. Yeah, exactly. We could all do exactly. with an extra hour or two to pursue everything. Yeah. Um, but exactly. I have to say on your website, um, some of the stories and topics we talked about in this interview are also, um, you write about on your website. Um, but um, I'm just so glad we got to talk. I'm so glad that we got to hear about your new venture and your journey to it. And um, it's just been really great talking with you. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. This was really fun. I appreciate you uh, reaching out and making some time for me. Yeah, this was great. Well, I wish you the best of luck and I look forward to seeing your skier in, uh, in the New York area. And uh, like I said, you can check out Villa Villa Kula Farm, uh, their website, and also you have an Instagram and Facebook. I sure do. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have both of those things because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a modern gal. <laughs> <laughs> even even all the way up there in Tunbridge, Vermont. Yep, even up here. So, all right, and thank you everybody for joining us and uh, enjoy the um, podcast and we'll see you back here soon. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.